This podcast is brought to you by Friendly City Books, Columbus, Mississippi's independent bookstore. Learn more at FriendlyCityBooks.com. And welcome to a very special edition of the Friendly City Books podcast. I'm Aislinn, and I am so thrilled to have with us today Katie Simpson-Smith. Her book, The Weeds, came out on April 18th. It is fantastic, and we have her here for a uh, author dinner tonight, and um, glad to, to have her here with us. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So we have, um, we just want to talk a little bit about uh, who you are and who you are as a writer. So uh, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, so I grew up in Jackson, not too far away. Um, I come from an academic family. Both my parents were professors. Um, And importantly for this book, my mother is a very big gardener. So Mm. she has a giant garden that's I think the most beautiful in the whole neighborhood. Um, And so I grew up writing uh, short stories sort of as a hobby. Um, And then it took me a while to get into writing more seriously. And I think um, a lot of people can identify with uh, having a kind of wandering career path. Um, So in college, I studied film. Uh, I went to graduate school for history uh, and then sort of belatedly realized that my true passion was in fiction and in telling stories that incorporated the past and historical research in a way that brought the hearts and minds of people to life. Um, So ever since I started doing that full time, I have felt like I've finally found exactly the road that I should be on. Yeah. My husband is also a historian. You'll get to meet him tonight. He's finishing up his PhD, but he also really wants to write fiction oh interesting so how tell tell me a little bit more about how your work as a historian influences your writing yeah so I studied um women's history in graduate school I wrote a book about the experiences of um white black and native american mothers in the 19th and uh 18th and early 19th century south um and so I was I spent five years gathering all this archival material. I was reading letters and diaries. I was looking at kind of fragments um, in order to put together a story about how these women conceived of their own motherhood and childbearing potential and whether they saw that as a source of power um, or as a limitation in this time and place. Yeah. Um, So I learned a lot about how to do research and how to... Um, find the stories that are kind of on the margins of the stories that we're more familiar with. But it, you know, in in doing history, you are limited by what the record says. So you can present the facts, you can present an argument around those facts, but you can't really speculate about Mm -hmm. how people were actually feeling. Um, And when, you know, reading these letters of women who were, you know, enduring incredibly tough experiences, Um, and not being able to say this is how they might have felt about it 
that was really tough. And it was kind of a, the way I first started pivoting into imagining these lives as fictional. Yeah. Um, so my first novel was set also in the late uh, 18th century in the South. And so I just sort of poached all of my research for my dissertation and found a way to use that to tell these stories that I was really fascinated by. And I think it was a matter of giving myself permission mm -hmm. to go into imaginative terrain um, after years of professors telling me um, everything needs a citation. Um, <laughs> and now, you know, uh, for the first time, I'm allowed to kind of go wild in in the past and no one is um, shaking their finger at me. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit about the the Jewish practice of Midrash, mm. of reading between the lines of the biblical stories and kind of imagining what people were thinking and feeling and what happened between the lines. Yeah, the subtext of history. Yeah, because these are real people. These right. aren't just words on a page. Sense of place, um, I, I, I think it seems to be really important in your writing. Um, your, your first book was set in North Carolina, which is where you were doing your PhD, right? And, uh, your second book was set here in the, in the South and your latest books were set in Rome. Uh, how do you think place has influenced and will continue to influence your writing? I think being a Southerner has certainly affected the way I see the importance of landscape. Um, we grow up in a, in a, in a world that is very, uh, clogged with natural beauty in a way that can be both, um, inspiring and oppressive. If you imagine, you know, the kudzu growing along the side of the road, it looks stunning. And then you notice the houses that are being swallowed underneath it. Um, so I've always seen it as a kind of pulsating, alive presence rather than a kind of backdrop. And that certainly comes from, from being a Mississippian. Um, so when I imagine creating novels, I often start with, you know, what is the world these people are inhabiting? What does it look like? Mm -hmm. What does it smell like? Um, what are the birds flying overhead? What are the flowers that they're able to, to see? Um, and of course, going to Rome, I did not think at the time that I visited that I would ever write about it. I didn't have the authority to imagine that I could write about it. Um, but the landscape there, too, was so evocative. Um, the layers of history, uh, the way that it put history on display front and center yeah. in a way that I think is kind of parallel to the way the South handles history. Mm. Um, in those moments, I was like, oh, I think I think I might end up writing about this place. And then, of course, I've done it for two novels now. <laughs> um, so clearly the, the setting was was magnetic for me. Yeah, I um I said this in, in our uh, Why We Love Katie Simpson Smith podcast. Uh, so if you're listening to this conversation, you should go back and listen to Caroline and I wax poetic about why we love the everlasting. Uh, but I read the everlasting while in Italy. And I was, uh, my husband and I went on our honeymoon um, on the Amalfi Coast and him being a historian and me being me, uh, we spent a lot of time going to museums and going into the places that they had excavated, all the layers, and mm -hmm. um, just bringing to life 
that that setting was um it 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 was incredibly meaningful for me to read that book while there Mm. Uh, what began your loves your love and fascination with Rome good question I so I went there um for the first time in a kind of extended uh, way in 2015, I just finished uh, writing a draft of uh, Freeman, my second novel, and was experiencing some writer's block. Uh, I hadn't put a word on a page in six months or something, and I thought, oh my God, how am I going to write my next book? Um, I don't have a single idea in my head. I feel completely barren. Um, nothing around me was feeling inspirational. Um, and I, at that point I thought the problem was the English language that I had like run out of words quite literally. <laughs> and I thought that the, the secret to this is to go somewhere where no one speaks English. And so that my brain can be fully emptied of English and can mm. fill itself back up with something else. Um, so I decided to go to Rome. I didn't really speak Italian at the time. Um, and the plan was just to wander around the city, um, not understand anything that anyone was saying to me and then see if the well would kind of fill up naturally. Um, but I certainly was not going to write a book about Rome because I didn't mm-hmm. know anything about Rome. Um, so I, I went there for a month, which was just as lovely as it sounds um, and spent most of my days walking around the city and looking at architecture and art um, and the parks and, you know, eating the gelato. <laughs> It's so uh, good. It's so good. Um, and I can't be in a new place without having ideas. And mm-hmm. so seeing, um, again, those layers of history that we're talking about called to mind so many possible structures for a novel. I often start with structure. Um, I thought, what if you could write a novel that replicates, you know, four time periods happening at once mm-hmm. the way this church is built on an old temple, which is built on an old Mithraeum. Like, could you do that in fiction? Uh, I you had a little notebook and I was writing down interesting character ideas and things that I was seeing, um, smells. Uh, and by the end of the trip, I was like, I think I might be writing a book about Rome. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to figure out how to do research Mm-hmm. I have a lot of experience as a historian, but in, in the American South, and I knew nothing about Roman history. I had to start from the very beginning, learning how to tie a toga, <laughs> um, and then work my way into the kind of deeper histories of the Catholic Church um, and all kinds of historical, you know, landmarks in Roman history. Uh, and it was it was fun, but it was grueling, and I, yeah. I didn't realize quite what I'd gotten myself into. <laughs> I saw that, like in in the reading of the the everlasting, the that the the layers of the book seemed to reflect the layers of of Rome itself, uh, and I thought that was really cool. So tell us more about your writing process. You said you start with structure. Uh, do you? When you got into your characters, did you write the characters' story linearly and then put it together? Did you write it in bits and pieces? Um, and if you haven't read The Everlasting or The Weeds, you'll know that you'll you'll find when you read it that um, each of these stories does follow multiple characters across time. 
Um, so we we get each character's story in bits and pieces, but how do you write it? That's a great question. These two books were written very differently. Um, the Everlasting, I wrote uh, the way I write most of my novels, which is uh, it takes me several years. I am often moving pieces around, trying to figure out the shape that makes the most sense for the narrative. Um, I wrote each character in the Everlasting individually as a novella. Uh, so I wrote Tom all at once, and then I wrote, you know, I think maybe I started with Prisca. I wrote Prisca first. Um, and then once I had their whole stories, then it was a question of, okay, how is this going to work? I, I knew that I didn't want to move chronologically through them. Mm -hmm. Um, because that would kind of replicate the way we think about the progression of time. Like, we start at the beginning, we go to the end, and Tom is the end point of the narrative, and thus, like, the culmination of everything that we've experienced. I don't think Tom is the culmination of everything. I think he is part of this constantly cycling process. Um, and then I thought, okay, I could go backwards in time, but then that has the, a similar kind of effect. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to break them up. I'm going to intersperse them. And once I did that, then it was a matter of looking at the transitional moments between each section and thinking, is this feeding into the next narrative in the right way? And are the echoes working? Um, you know, there's various elements that uh, we trace throughout the story. And is, it, is the moment of discovery happening at the right time once the narratives are all fractured in the way they are? Um, so then it became just like a very fun jigsaw puzzle. Um, the Weeds, on the other hand, I wrote from beginning to end uh, very fast. I wrote it in four months. Wow. And the beautiful thing was that I had this taxonomic structure from the flora of the Colosseum in 1855 that the, the, the story is kind of based on. Um, and I just replicated that structure. I start with the same plant that Richard Deacon starts with in his mm -hmm. 19th century flora. And I go through every single plant. I don't leave any out. And then I get to the very last plant in his book. And so I didn't have any choice about where to go with the narrative or whether I could move things around, um, which in in some ways was difficult and constraining and frustrating and in other ways was enormously freeing because um, I didn't have to spend time, you know, self-conscious about my own imagination I said, this yeah. is what I have to do today. I just have to write about this plant and then get to the next one. <laughs> um, and and then the interspersing of those narrators just happened in order. I would write mm -hmm. one and then the other and then one and then the other uh, until I got to the end of the book. You've already mentioned that The Weeds is based on Richard Deacon's Flora of the Colosseum of Rome. Uh, why? Why that book? Why why did it grab your attention? Uh, so my mother actually uh, was the one who read an article about this flora. Um, was it the one that came out in the Atlantic yes. in 2017? Yes. <laughs> yes. And she is a gardener and she loves weird gardening stories. And she read it and she came to me and she said, did you know... <laughs> There were 420 <laughs> species of plant growing in the Colosseum in 1855. And I said, that's not possible. That's, you know, the Colosseum is not a jungled space. 
Um, but of course, we now know that it is very much a jungled space. Mm-hmm. Um, and beyond my disbelief at her anecdote, uh, I had a little light bulb of structure pop up in my head. I thought 420 species sounds like an organization for a novel. How could I write a novel about plants, about the discovery of plants? Who would be the person telling it? Um, so then once my mind got rolling mm-hmm. down that path, it was I was sort of a lost cause. <laughs> but I can blame my mother for everything. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I think we all can. It's part of being a, a Mississippian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we love them very dearly and we blame them. <laughs> Let's talk about your characters a little bit. And I want to start with um, kind of tying together the characters and the structure of your novels. That each of your, each of your most recent novels set in Rome, The Everlasting and the Weeds, have these intertwining stories. And both of them have a supernatural character who is omniscient, but also powerless. And I love that. <laughs> Who or what inspired that those characters? And uh, is it? Do you consider it an integral part of your storytelling now, or is it just <laughs> something that happened with these two books and you'll never do it again? I think it's something that happened. And hopefully, I never do it again because <laughs> otherwise, people will be like, "Katie, I see what you're doing." <laughs> um, I think in both cases, because I was working with intertwining narrators in different time periods I felt the need for a kind of presence that mirrored the role of either the author or the historian Mm. so someone who was witnessing everything who was pulling it together who was commenting who was commiserating um, who is a kind of spectral observer Um, In the same way that I feel when I write my books, I am, you know, writers are godlike in the way that they get to manipulate character action. Um, And it felt like a a kind of honest way to acknowledge that rather than to pretend that these these narrators are just happening to live their own lives. Mm -hmm. No, there is a kind of puppet master, which is either, you know, Satan or me, (laughs) who is... um, kind of helping the pieces move along Mm -hmm. um, and and tying them together. Uh, So I think that's where that comes from. Um, But no, I really hope I don't do it again. (laughs) I wouldn't mind if you did. (laughs) Thank you. I I like... I love the the time traveling Satan and the and the little and the ghost of... Well, no spoilers. No spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us a little bit more about your relationship with your characters. Um, Who do you identify the most with? Is there one you love to hate? There's definitely one I love to hate, but (laughs) no spoilers on that one. (laughs) That's a good question. I I think for the most part, I deeply love them all. Um, I feel very parental towards all of them. Um, I think I have to because I created them and I'm asking the reader to go on this journey with them. Um, even when they are deeply frustrating and are doing things that I think are crazy and I wish they wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think coming from a place of deep empathy for them allows me to um, kind of put them through 
the ringer in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the, the core of fiction is conflict. Um, and you have to, you have to throw up these obstacles in front of your characters and hope that they overcome them. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, but you want to replicate the experience of the reader to root for them. So you Mm -hmm. yourself want to be rooting for them. And a lot of that comes with love. Uh, in my first novel, I had to write a character who was an older white man in the 18th century who is deeply racist. And my challenge was to figure out how to love him. And I think by the end of writing that book, he was my favorite character. Like I loved him so much in spite of his deep flaws. Um, and that in turn, I think, makes me more empathetic towards people in my daily life who I don't always agree with or see eye to eye with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of my favorites from these, these two most recent books, um, probably from the everlasting, it's Felix. <laughs> Felix to me feels like a kind of aspirational character. Like I want to be more like him. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not there yet, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he kind of lights my way, uh, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also a beauty of, of writing characters to like have the power to write someone who is even better than you are. And you're like, Oh, if I try harder, I can be like him. <laughs> um, and then the flip side of that is in the most recent book, I think I identify most with the modern narrator who is so much more, um, kind of mouthy and loud and aggressive than I am. Uh, in ways that like if I had been that way, I think I would have been judged growing mm-hmm. up. Uh, and she's like, you know, my inner self getting to explode outward on the page. And I like am here for all of her mischief. Yeah. I mean, she's she is what is inside, I think, every woman raised in Mississippi. But she didn't have the mother who said, no, you can't say that out loud. You have to have a dead mother in order to get where she is. <laughs> Womanhood is is a core theme in the weeds. And um, one of the things that Caroline talks about in our earlier podcast and uh, that she loves about your books is feminine rage and uh, your feminine characters, including uh, the the audiobooks time traveling devil as as a feminine character, uh, they're unafraid to tap into emotions that would be traditionally considered ugly or improper. Uh, what is the thing that drives you to give such powerful representation to to women and their anger? I think a lot of it comes from being a Southern woman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been taught in so many ways to be docile and quiet and meek. Um, and we're rewarded for that, right? Like people are nice to us if we're nice to them in those particular ways. Um, and I think a lot of, you know, the work of fiction is kind of peeling back the layers of appropriate human behavior to figure out what is actually like writhing inside of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, wrote this book in the fall of 2018 which was sort of the height of the me too movement when all of these women were saying like we're realizing simultaneously that our collective voices were not being heard Mm -hmm. um and i thought you know gosh has my voice been heard have i been saying the right things um 
is there a cost to this behavior that I have internalized as positive? Um, and then what would that look like if I allowed these characters to say the things that, that I have not said? Um, so I think a lot of, a lot of my feminist character building is therapeutic for me. Um, and I see that as a way to kind of exercise my own demons and my own upbringing. Uh, and I hope in a way that resonates with readers, both male and female, who mm. kind of get to listen to women's voices perhaps in a new way. Absolutely. I've I noticed a lot um, in my line of work, <laughs> which we talked about earlier, um, that sometimes I can I can hide the point that I'm trying to make because I don't want to be too straightforward because mm -hmm. I've been taught that 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 is not something that a southern woman should be uh, and sometimes you have to you have to take the mask off mm -hmm. just let it go <laughs> I think of that when I write emails to people and there's so many circumlocutions that are like yes. would it be possible like would you mind if I did this one thing in a certain way and if not that's totally fine but I was just wanting to ask you know <laughs> it's like why am I saying all of these words <laughs> and uh wondering if you put too many exclamation points exactly and going back and deleting like half of the exclamation <laughs> points so you seem more serious <laughs> yes exactly Let's talk a little bit about the physical book of The Weeds. How much influence did you have over over the binding, the typeface, the sketches? Uh, it's a it's a beautiful book, and it reminds me of of the old readers, like Richard Deacon's book probably would have been published as. Um, so. Was that intentional? Like, tell me about the process of yeah, the physical I book. Yeah, I'm so happy with the way it turned out. Um, I agree that it's just like a sweet, perfect little object. Um, I had some input. Um, so one of the things I fought very hard for was getting it illustrated. Mm. Publishers do not want to pay money to print illustrations, certainly in adult literary fiction. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had to do a lot of convincing. Um, but... Uh, once I found this illustrator who her aesthetic about plants is so different from traditional botanical illustration. She's not mm -hmm. focusing on like the beautiful flower. She's interested in like plants that are mid decay or plants that have insect galls on the stems or, you know, uh, sort of gnarly twining vines. Um, and I showed that to my editor and my editor was like, oh, yeah, this is beautiful <laughs> and it's perfect. Um, so I was very lucky that they got on board with the idea and that they were willing to to take this risk. Um, and then I had a little bit of input in the the cover design and sort of how how the book itself would be shaped. Um, but you know the the team at my publisher at FSG also had just incredible ideas of their own, and I felt very lucky to be working with people who have a similar idea about books as beautiful objects and not mm -hmm. just the words inside. And I love the small size mm -hmm. of it. And I, uh, it, it's probably the, my favorite physical copy of a book that I have gotten this year. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, 
let's let's switch uh switch gears for a little bit do something fun tell me about your favorite italian tourist destinations oh my gosh my favorite italian tourist destinations this is going to make me really sad and nostalgic because I haven't been <laughs> since 2017. Um, I've been hoping to go in the summer of 2020, but COVID, of course, yeah. changed all of our plans. Um, there's so many spots in Rome that I particularly love. Um, the, there's various churches that are kind of undervisited, mm-hmm. uh, including the Church of Santa Prisca, uh, which is in the Everlasting and which is on the Aventine Hill. Uh, sort of up and beyond um, the famous church where with the mouth of truth where you can put your mouth in the put your hand in the mouth of the demon and see if it bites it off like in Roman holiday uh, but if you keep going up that hill uh, you'll pass the uh, oh what is it the Giardina della Aranci the orange garden and mm-hmm. then pass that to Santa Prisca and no one is inside I've never seen a single tourist there it's tiny but they have these beautiful murals on the walls uh, of this, the stages of Santa Prisca's life. And so there's one of like her kneeling before a lion and you can just like sit in the pew and just stare at that all day. And it's very, very beautiful. Um, but then I love so much about modern Rome too. Like I've got a favorite like pizza slice place. Um, there's an amazing, uh, restaurant near the Spanish steps that doles out giant heaps of fresh pasta for like four euros. It's so good. Um, so yeah, now I'm getting hungry. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, that was my next question. Or what are your favorite, what are your favorite Italian foods? I am a huge pasta lover. I can eat pasta all day. Um, I love pizza al taglio, which is the, the pizza in the, by the slice, but they slice it in, in these rectangles mm-hmm. and they sort of hover the knife over the giant flatbread and, and you can say, you know, a little more, a little less, uh, and they have the most interesting toppings. That's where I first discovered potato pizza with these like thin slices of potato oh, and yeah. rosemary and olive oil and salt. Ken Forkish has a recipe for that, I think, in his mm. book. Or is it in tartine bread? I also I, I bake and I, I cook. So that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the potato pizza. There's something about it. Yeah. You wouldn't think it'd be great, but it is. It is. Um, and the, Yeah. And the gelato, of course. Favorite um, gelato flavor. Oh, gosh. Frutti di Bosco, which is like all the berries of the woods. Nice. My my favorite is Fior de Latte. Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just so simple. Yeah. Anything else that we haven't talked about that you would love to to add in for listeners to our podcast? Oh, gosh. No, just that well, I'll, I'll say that I've been on book tour for a couple of weeks now and as soon as my tour entered Mississippi and I started going around to Mississippi stores, it just felt like everything got like homier and warmer and cozier. And I was like, I was among my people again. And I've never felt like so embraced as I have felt in Mississippi independent bookstores. And I just want to thank the state for, for all that they do for writers because it's extraordinary. Well, thank you for the gift of all of your books. Because they are also extraordinary. Thank you. What's next for you? Any projects in the hopper? Yes. Are we are we going to get a New Orleans set book? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I do not have the audacity <laughs> to write a New Orleans book. 
Um, I'm working on a project right now that's set on the island of Malta. <gasps> so a little bit further afield than, than Rome, um, but still Mediterranean and lush and mm-hmm. hopefully with really good food. Um, and it's sort of, I'm leaning more into the murder mystery element and trying to find a way to kind of bridge the gap between literary fiction and a kind of uh, crimey, beach reedy, entertaining mm-hmm. page turner. Um, <laughs> we'll see if I if it's effective or not. Uh, but it's been super fun to write. Uh, I started during COVID, and it felt like a kind of escape for my own brain to go to somewhere that beautiful in my fiction. Katie, we've talked a lot about your writing and your process, and that's very personal. And uh, you shared a lot of that with us. So we'll we'll move away from the personal stuff. And uh, what is a book that you love to recommend or a book that's come out recently that you want to share about or um, we're, we're a bookstore. People listen to the podcast for recommendations and um, we're looking for them. That's such a good question, and it's the worst question you can possibly ask another writer, because <laughs> we're just filled with books that we want to put into people's hands. Um, I'll say the book that I've read recently that most kind of lit a fire under me and that I want everyone to have a copy of um, is a book called Oh Caledonia by Elspeth Barker. It was originally published, I think, in the early 90s, but it was just reissued. Um, The new edition has an introduction by Maggie O'Farrell, who wrote Hamnet. Um, And it is a very strange little idiosyncratic book about a teenage girl um, who gets murdered within the first page, I believe. Uh, And then the novel works its way backward to try to explain how she got to this point in her life. And it is deeply funny and dark that this teenager is so uh, unpleasant in the most funny ways um, that by the end of the book, you're like, well, anyone could have murdered her because she's so difficult. Um, But you feel very strongly for her despite her weirdnesses. Um, And so I think in terms of like the ongoing debate about likable characters, especially female likable characters, she is a fabulous example of someone is both um, hard to root for and incredibly lovable. Uh, So I'm kind of obsessed with that one, and that's the one that I would recommend. Well, thank you, Katie, for spending some time with me and and talking about your work and your process. And uh, if you haven't read uh, any of Katie's works, you can get them at Friendly City Books or your local indie bookstore. And... uh, We hope that you will enjoy her most recent work, The Weeds, as much as I did. Happy reading. Hi, friends. It's Emily. Thanks for listening. Support Friendly City Books and other independent bookstores like us by shopping online at bookshop.org and libro.fm. Find us on social media at Friendly City Books. And don't forget to like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy reading!